Good afternoon. It's Friday, September 16th, and this is Chickie Fitzgerald with the Executive Girlfriends Group. And I am pleased to introduce my guest today, the author of It's Always Personal, Ann Kramer. Ann, welcome. Hi, Chickie. How are you? I'm doing just great. Great. And I would love to hear, uh, before we dive into talking about your book, I'd, I'd like to hear just a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, I'm I'm a person who's had a variety of different careers in my life. I started out first in commercial banking. Um, when I discovered that that wasn't really right for me, I ended up going to work for um, children's television workshops, the people who made Sesame Street and the Electric Company, uh, in international in international program sales, where I was responsible for selling the series in um, Southeast Asia and the Caribbean and um, parts of the Middle East, which was a wonderful experience for me in terms of um, I was doing it in the late 70s, early 80s, well before the notion of kind of the global economy um, was on anybody's minds, but it gave me a really firsthand, up-close and personal sense of what that was like. Um, I went from there working to work in textbook publishing, um, sort of rounding out a kind of sense of what the children's industry might be like from a print perspective, now that I'd had a sense of the television perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I left there when CBS sold the division I was working in um, and went to work uh, co-founding Spy Magazine with my husband, which was a satiric humor magazine that we launched in the um, mid-'80s. And from there I went to um, Nickelodeon, where I created and ran their consumer products businesses and eventually rose to be the worldwide creative director for the organization as well. Um, what fun. <laughs> it was fun. It, you know, it, it's been a wonderful kind of experience in terms of learning a variety of different media, um, from television to publishing to magazine publishing, kind of marketing, product development, um, advertising, a a broad swath of the things that kind of um, comprise the entertainment arena, as it were. Uh, And it was also terrific for me to um, work in children's um, content and entertainment because I find that that's an area that um, has kind of more latitude, uh, seemed to have more risk-taking associated with it in some ways, kind of oxy moronically compared to the um, adult programming arena. And it's been um, something that ultimately all these different things have come into play in terms of um, my thinking about book publishing and where uh-huh. I relate in that arena. Well, so that's we'll a little bit about notes. me. We'll have to compare notes on the media side. I'm just, I've am just i just taken the role of CEO of a new media company uh, that is centered on uh, wine video distribution worldwide. Huh, that sounds fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it 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 absolutely has been a blast because I've spent the last 20, or actually 30 years in the travel industry. Uh-huh. And, you know, just I've, I've become expert in, in so many areas within the travel industry, primarily having to do with distribution, but it is so much fun to learn something new. So it sounds mm-hmm. to me like writing for you was uh, uh, an expression of, of um, you know, all of this ex- exploration that you had done through these other parts of of media. But but what about this topic? Because the the title of the book is it's always personal, and and this is talking about the workplace. And I, I was fascinated in, in reading some of the comments that people have written. 
um, you know, talking about how we should behave in the in the workplace, and in particular, uh, you talk about women. Um, but why don't you just walk me through, you know, why this topic? Who did you write the book for, and uh, what kind of response have you gotten? Sure, great. Um, I call, titled the book "It's Always Personal" because there was that. Um, line that I'm sure you've heard and that all of us who've worked in our lives have heard, when somebody comes up to you and says something, look, Anne, you know, it's not personal, it's just business. And you know kind of at the back of your mind it's 99.9% pretty much whatever they're telling you actually is personal. And they're using that kind of excuse as a way to say something and often and usually mean. Now, obviously, people can be critical of your work performance in different ways, and it's not personal, but I've found that the people who say it's not personal are the ones who are always actually making a personal statement. So that's where I got the title of the book. And I I got interested in this subject matter because um, I was at a cocktail party a couple years ago, and a former colleague of mine from MTV Networks came up to me, and she said, why was it that every woman she knew had cried at work and wished that she hadn't? And I had this, like, complete epiphany at that moment because it brought back to mind an incident that I'd had when I was working at Nickelodeon um, where I had just closed this giant home video deal with Sony Music, and I was in my office celebrating with a my colleagues who'd been part of helping me negotiate the deal, and the phone rang, and it was um, the chairman of Viacom, Sumner Redstone, calling me for the first time that I ever, when I had worked at that company. And I thought, oh, awesome, he's calling to like congratulate us on what a good job we'd done. Well, instead, when I picked up the phone, he started screaming at me, um, so much that you can almost see the spittle frothing out of the end of the telephone receiver. Um, because I'd failed to make the stock price of Viacom move with the announcement of the deal. And so I sat there in front of my colleagues, and I sort of took it on the chin, and then the minute he slammed the phone down on me, I cried. And I sat there, and I thought when this woman came up to me at the party and made me think this, I thought, why is it that when women cry in the workplace, they feel ashamed? What are the assumptions behind that? And so that you know, question um, led me on a two-year journey where I traveled from New York to Los Angeles interviewing over 200 people along my route. Um, I fielded two large national surveys with J. Walter Thompson, the advertising agency, to sort of have a kind of statistical snapshot of what people were feeling about emotion in the workplace. And through those prisms, I discovered... um, a variety of different things that relate to, you know, and I deal in the book with everything from fear and anxiety and frustration to anger and crying and happiness and joy and compassion. So I have a sort of broad uh, overview of that. But the two real emotional flashpoints that emerged were um, anger and crying, and there were very clear um, differences on those emotions between men and women which then led me to a third layer of kind of research. Well, what was up with that? So I then started digging into the you know new neuroscience um, surrounding um, what is emerging about the differences between the way men and women process and deal with emotion that's neurochemically based. And and you were mentioning in the uh, the intro that I I was reading earlier that men actually do cry at work 
and and that there are quite a few instances of that. I think you know that was probably my most surprising revelation about uh, you know reading about the book. I, I haven't had the opportunity to read the book itself yet, um, mm-hmm. but you know maybe you can start by by uh, taking us through a little bit of how the book is structured. Uh, you start with a, a chapter called the moment of truth. And right. was well, that your yeah. moment of truth that that you went through the story that you just told us, yeah. or is there, or is there a moment of truth that we all need to get to to understand the appropriateness of emotion at work? Well, I think it is probably true of all of us, and in fact, I tried to um, use the anecdote I just described to you as my entry point into the conversation because I think um, all of us have experienced something like that at one time or another, feeling undervalued or feeling that the rules have changed beneath your feet or, uh, you know, like you don't have the resources you need, whatever it might be that trigger a kind of moment where you think, wow, really, this is this this is why I'm in this, you know, organization for this, to, to be treated like this on some level? Right, right. Um, you know, and so I did kind of walk you through a bit of how I kind of approach this. I mean, the, the things that I discovered um, in the kind of analytical statistical side of this was, as you mentioned, 9% of men reported that they had cried during the last year in the workplace. And I think that that number probably is a little bit higher because I think people would self-report a slightly lower number if you were a man in terms of the survey. And 41% of women had reported that they had cried at work, which on the surface you would look at and say, well, that obviously shows that they're more emotional, that they're weaker sex, blah, 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 whatever it is. But the reality is that's where the kind of neurobiology factors in because um, I discovered, for instance, that women are anatomically different from men. Their tear ducts in their eyes are actually smaller than those in men's eyes. So when a woman feels uh, tears coming on, more often than not, they will stream down her face because they're pushed out more copiously, whereas a man there will just get teary-eyed. Um, women produce six times the amount of prolactin, which is the hormone that triggers tears. Um, And so it's statistically given that, like, duh, of course we're going to cry more frequently. (laughs) So instead of this phenomenon that should be something that we're ashamed of, what I realized is that, um, through my research, that, you know, there's three different kinds of tears. There's um, kind of... Uh, basic tears, basal tears, which are the ones that are just bathing your eye constantly. There's reflex tears, which are the ones that you get when you chop an onion or you know you bang your finger in the you know door or something. The psychic tears, which are the ones that we're dealing with here, are um, actually neurobiologically different from those other tears. They contain higher levels of protein and they perform a very different kind of emotional reset button for um, all of us. And there are a variety of different kinds. There are tears, you know, any parent knows that, you know, the difference between a child crying and an infant crying from hunger or pain or fear or exhaustion. Well, the same is true with adults. Our tears are like um, the check engine light going off on your car dashboard. You know, you don't necessarily have to get into the shop in the next hour, but, you know, if you don't take care of the underlying situation, sometime you're going to be off on a you know, dark <laughs> rural road and your car's going to break down and you're going to think, wow, why didn't I take care of that before? Right. Tears at work are the same kind of thing. You know, it's they're a signal that something is not quite right. 
there an opportunity for you to step back and actually reflect and say, wow, whatever's going on is so powerful, I'm actually crying here. Um, so what's up? And, you know, if you're in an environment, uh, you know, if you're in a workplace and you happen to, let's say you're in a one-on-one meeting uh, and you're the boss and somebody starts to cry in your office, well, instead of pretending like it didn't happen, it's a real opportunity to say, well, what's going on? Um, let's talk about this. Right. Um, but the main point is no one should feel ashamed of it. It's not weak. It's a biological phenomenon just like breathing or, you know, muscular reflex. So you, you've talked a bit about anger, and, and there's a chapter in the book called The Anger Epidemic. Yeah. And, you know, is anger just a male thing? Well, no, it's so fascinating. I mean, you know, 60% of everybody in the workplace had seen their boss get angry with somebody during the past year. Young men think anger is actually an effective management tool, and I think that's because they've been kind of socially conditioned to think that's the case, you know, from, you know, looking at TV shows like The Office to, you know, Michael Douglas in Wall Street. Um, You know, but women, young women, are actually more angry than anybody else in the entire workforce. And I think some of that has to do with this kind of social conditioning that women feel that they are not, um, allowed to show their kind of true emotional range in the workplace for fear of being labeled overly emotional. And I think a lot of what happens is that, like me, I, you know, I wanted to get angry at that chairman of my company calling at me, screaming at me for something I had absolutely zero control over. But instead of doing that, because I thought it would be social, you know, professional suicide, um, I ended up crying, which is viewed as, you know, ironically the more sort of socially acceptable thing for a woman to do in the workplace, but it's very much she's damned if she does and she's damned if she doesn't. I mean, the Carol Bart's firing from Yahoo is a perfect example of that. I mean, I think it became such an emotional flashpoint when she emailed all of her workforce saying, I've just been fired by phone. Well, she was angry. You know, yes. she was insulted. She was uh, felt that, uh, you know, management could have at least, I think, given her the courtesy of firing her to her face, don't you? I mean, Absolutely. so, uh, but, you know, people thought she was, you know, kind of out of control and a loose cannon and all sorts of things because she actually expressed what was probably perfectly justifiable anger, but she did it publicly, and that's, uh, you know, a tough thing for um, people to swallow still at this point. So how much of of these things are about, and particularly the, the teary response, is it fear, is it anxiety, is it all of those things? It's all of the above, and I, th- I think another large part of this issue is, you know, it used to be uh, possible to believe that the workplace was rational and, you know, kind of objective and that our home lives were this kind of subjective emotional arena. And the truth of the matter is now um, there is no distinction really between the two spheres anymore. When people are in their workplace, they're getting texted and emailed and phoned by friends and family. And, you know, there's a kind of constant barrage of the quote-unquote emotional arena um, coming into kind of the professional environment. And when we're at home, 
um, you know, we're expected to be on call 24-7 and to be accessible to our colleagues and get our work done no matter what time of night or day that we're, you know, emailed or um, texted. So I think that, you know, as a culture, we're facing this moment of having to do serious reassessment over um, what we consider our workplace appropriate norms to be. And I think to the degree that we can kind of acknowledge the fact that there aren't these distinct spheres, that we're all working 24-7, whether we're, you know, in line waiting at Starbucks or whether we're, you know, on the plane, um, and that the greater degree to which we can be consistently um, kind of the same individual throughout all spheres, the less likely I think it is that people will ultimately end up exploding in the workplace or coming home and taking it out on their families or, you know, drinking too much or not getting any sleep or whatever, you know, all the kind of unhealthy symptoms that I think our culture is suffering right now from this sense of trying to keep these rigid spheres, which were never distinct in the first place, um, isolated. Right, and that that was one thing that occurred to me as I was looking at, you know, just the whole topic of emotion in the workplace, that, you know, some people uh, seem to be really good at keeping a, I'll call it keeping a lid on on that whole uh, emotional sphere of, of what is going on in their home life. And, and I a couple of weeks ago, I forget what the topic was on the egg call, but we were uh, talking about, uh, I don't know if you watched The Good Wife. Um, but I don't, but I obviously have to. Everybody I know loves it. <laughs> yeah, but but this character, Alicia, whose husband has been unfaithful to her and he's in a very public position as the state's attorney, and and she is always so very controlled. And there's a part of me, because I'm very much the, you know, I wear my heart on my sleeve and mm-hmm. I don't, my business life and my personal life and my faith and all of those things aren't separate. I, I you know, I'm I'm the same person 24 hours a day. But I mm-hmm. look at someone like that, and a part of me, you know, admires that. And you know, I know a lot of men who very much keep their lives in separate buckets. And if they do go to church, then that's their Sunday persona, and you know, and their business persona when they're at work is one thing, and when they're with their families, it's another. And when they're with the guys, whether it's you know fishing or you know antiquing or whatever they want to do, you know, I don't want to stereotype that. But they seem to be much more capable of keeping uh, those buckets going. Yeah, I know. I mean, and I don't, you know, there's, there's layers and layers of kind of social conditioning that go on here. And I mean, I think um, it's a, almost like a question of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. I mean, if you think through to kind of popular imagery, whether it's, you know, the Sigourney Weaver character in um, Working Girl or um, the Meryl Streep character in The Devil Wears Prada or whatever, I mean, there are – you can go too far in the kind of keeping it all together um, admirable quality of the character you describe in The Good Wife – um, but you also don't want to have the kind of leaky emotional, um, constantly um, kind of seeming overwhelmed colleague either. And I think it's a question of learning to um, figure out for yourself kind of what your appropriate water level is or style is. And I mean, I offer in the book, uh, in each chapter, whether it's one on anger or fear or examining, a variety of different strategies that 
and through the interviews that I did, you know, with different people, um, school teachers and farmers and, you know, um, factory workers, examples from them of um, situations that they've been in. And then I offer kind of tools that if you find that you're in this position and you feel like it's undermining your ability to advance professionally or you wish you could change your behavior, the good news is we actually all can. You know, the whole new science of kind of positive psychology and metacognition and all those things that go along with that. If you begin to um, focus your attention a bit on some of these things, there are um, tools and remedies and strategies that you can use to help you feel kind of more emotionally resilient and kind of um, capable of taking things more in your stride rather than letting them necessarily um, kind of undermine your ability to function effectively. Right. You know, as I uh, I always love great chapter titles, and you, you've done a marvelous job, and we're not going to have time to go through uh, and touch on all of them. But uh, as we jump over them, I want to mention them. There, There is one that talks about empathy and, and how we all get by with a little help from our friends, and that, that really is very much what the whole Executive Girlfriends group uh, has been all about is, you know, being able to get together on Friday afternoon and, and hear some great content and then, you know, spend a little time talking about the high point of our week or, you know, if it's appropriate, you know, talk about the low point. So, the, uh, the, I don't mean to interrupt you, but on, on the empathy and compassion front, the research surrounding that now is so powerful in terms of the workforce um, that companies that invest in sort of helping their employees, um, you know, connect to mission and feel empowered and do all these different things, it, it, it drops right to the bottom line. Like, uh, you know, in studies of hospitals, for instance, um, with nurses who have been coached in different ways in this area, patients spend less time in recovery. They leave the hospital sooner. There's less absenteeism in factory workers when they do wow. this. You know, and the the most, you know, all the research is showing that the thing that helps people be the most resilient in life is the sort of robustness and richness of their personal relationships that's that's equally true at work. So if you're feeling kind of isolated or like you're, you know, just uh, drowning in some capacity in, in your workplace, find someone that you can really connect with, and that will really help bolster you, you know. And if that's what this community of women does here, it's a, it, it's absolutely spot on with all the research that's going on in the in the field right now. Right. Right. Yeah, we we just included an article about that in our our recent newsletter of uh, some of the studies that have been done at Stanford yeah. uh, about about what it does to have girlfriends and yep. uh, that's I always love hearing that. Um, what I'd like to jump to in the the last few minutes that we have uh, left, I, because I'm always fascinated by different models that people put together. Um, mm-hmm. You outline the four profiles and and ask for individuals to determine which one they are. Can you tell me a little bit about that? In yeah, I did a survey of a thousand people nationwide, equal numbers of women and men in all fifty states and at all levels of management, asking them all sorts of different kinds of questions and how they might respond to um, emotionally charged incidents in the workforce. And coming out of that research, there emerged these kind of four types in a kind of Myers-Briggsian type way, but on an emotional quadrant, not kind of on a uh, skills uh, side of it. And the four types were what I call um, spouters, 
who are people I'm like you, I also wear my emotion on my sleeve. Um, you know, uh there were believers who are people who tend to get their meaning in life from um their ideals and kind of um beliefs. Um acceptors are people who um tend to be slightly more um kind of passive but questioning and kind of analytic and then solvers who um are the kind of um most resilient of the group and um tend to be more self aware and kind of uh, an- analytic um and uh n- there's no one type that's better than the other there were equal numbers of men and women in each type there were all levels of management in each type um and we're often hybrids when I've taken the survey and you can go to my website and take the survey if you'd like and get your kind of primary and secondary characteristics. But um, when I took it, I was a, what I call a spolver. I was primarily a spouter, but then I also had kind of solver characteristics. And at different times in our lives were different things and in different situations were different things. Right. And it's just sort of an opportunity to get um, a little help seeing yourself from the outside um, in terms of how you kind of go to a default position, perhaps, in dealing with stressful situations. You know, and I like to kind of uh, say that um, the Beatles are the perfect example I can think of of having all four of those personality types with them. You know, uh, John was a complete spouter, kind of out there, political activist. Uh, George, obviously, a huge believer with his um spiritual pursuits um uh paul was um you know the solver keeping the band going keeping things happening and ringo the acceptor kind of but you couldn't have had the beatles without terrific drumming so it's good to be aware of it it's good to understand that all types are essential and that we often move between them even ourselves um throughout our lives well, this is fascinating, fascinating stuff. And uh, some of the other chapters, again, that we don't have time to get into, but you, you do need to pick up this book because there's just a lot of a lot of meat here. Big Girls Don't Cry, Beyond the Facts of Life. Uh, we already talked about the four profiles. Bouncing Back, Happy, Happy, Joy, Joy, Creativity at Work, and We May Have Come from Mars and Venus, But We All Live on Earth. What would you like to leave our listeners with, Anne? Uh, that emotion is something that is integral to every aspect of our lives and that we deal with it constantly, that women and men struggle, in fact, in the same ways, and that um, this is something we can all get kind of um, smarter about and build our own kinds of uh, toolkits for emotional resiliency. And God knows in these troubling times, we could, <laughs> I think we could all use a, a bit of help in that regard. So... I hope the book is a great resource for people. Well, great. And again, the name of the book is It's Always Personal, Emotion in the New Workplace. And the author is Ann Kramer. And how can people reach you? Um, they can go to my website. It's Ann, A-N-N-E, last name, K-R-E-A-M-E-R.com. And um, from there, uh, all all will be clear. Okay, terrific. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, G. I did too. It was a great conversation. Okay, terrific. Thank you so much. Okie dokie. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, Chicky. 